Welcome. It's good to be able to share God's Word with you uh, once again. We're continuing in the Gospel of Luke, so if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 9. And uh, we're going to be talking about discipleship this morning. We're going to be talking about what it looks like to live life as a disciple of Jesus. And, and for most of you in this room, I imagine you consider yourself to be Jesus' disciples. Perhaps you've been, you've been following Jesus for maybe many years, even decades. Um, perhaps for some of you in this room, if you're here and you're not uh, a believer, you haven't committed yourself to Jesus, maybe you're asking yourself what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to become one of his disciples. So today we're going to be looking at a passage in which Jesus talks about what it looks like, what it means, what it costs to be one of his disciples. So uh, we're going to look at Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 36. And as we consider these verses, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at how uh, we follow Jesus because he is God's Messiah. We follow Jesus by denying ourselves daily, and we follow Jesus because of the hope of glory. So three things, we follow Jesus because he is God's Messiah, we follow Jesus by denying ourselves daily, and we follow Jesus because of the hope of glory. I'm going to read our passage and then uh, pray for the preaching of God's word. So this is Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 18 through 36. This is God's holy and inerrant word that he has given to us that we might know him. Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 18. Now it happened that he was praying alone. Sorry, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell, no, tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the, of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about, about eight days after, after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. 
And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks that you have given us this word so that we might know you. I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds by the power of your spirit um, to, to understand and to apply your word. I pray that you would bless um, my words, that they would be right and good and true and faithful, uh, and that you would help us all to grow in our knowledge and love for you and our desire to serve and walk faithfully with you. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we look at this passage, what I indicated at the beginning is that we're going to consider three things. And the first is that we follow Jesus because he is God's Messiah. So the passage opens up with Jesus asking his disciples a question about who the crowds say that, that he is, right? And, and I don't think Jesus is doing this because he's not sure, right? It's not like he's out of touch and he wants the, the, the disciples who, who are maybe in the know to share with him what the crowds are saying, right? I, I don't think that's what's going on. Instead, I think what Jesus is doing is he recognizes that what he is about to tell the disciples is going to be a very hard thing for them to accept and to believe, right? Jesus is going to tell them something that's going to be very difficult for them to accept, and he's going to ask them to do something which is going to be very hard for them to do. Jesus knows that in just a few minutes, just a few seconds really, he is going to tell them that he is going to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. This is the first time in Luke's Gospel in which Jesus tells his disciples this. And this would have been difficult for his disciples to understand, partly because of the expectations that the early or the first century Jews had about what the Messiah was going to come to do. Within the sort of culture and, and belief system of the day, the Jews believed that God was going to send a Messiah, and that Messiah was going to lead God's people in victory against the occupying Roman forces. And the sort of surefire test, whether or not someone who claimed to be a Messiah was not a Messiah, was if they died, particularly if they were crucified. And in fact, you see this in, in some of the discussions that happen uh, in some of the other Gospels where the, where the scribes and the Pharisees and, and Sadducees are sort of trying to figure out what should we do about Jesus. And, uh, and, and one of them says, you know, let's not do anything. Let's just wait and see. If he dies, he wasn't the Messiah. And, and if he doesn't die, well, then that's clearly God's will and we wouldn't want to be sort of uh, found to be going against God's will. And so it was sort of universally accepted that if a Messiah, if someone who claimed to be a Messiah died, they were not the Messiah. And so what Jesus is going to tell his disciples would not have made sense to them. He is going to tell them, I am going to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And he's asking them to believe a very, very difficult, confusing thing for them. And furthermore, not only is he asking them to accept that he is going to go to suffer and die, he is also asking them to go with him on that journey, both literally to Jerusalem and metaphorically in the, in the, in the course of their remaining lives. Right? So Jesus knows that what he is about to say uh, and, and ask them is going to be very difficult for them. And so he asks them uh, what the, who the crowds say that he is, uh, and the crowds sort of, ind- or the disciples indicate that 
the crowds think of Jesus as a prophet. But then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And of course, we have Peter here. Um, almost every time in the Gospels when Peter opens his mouth, it's, it's wrong. This is perhaps the one time in all of the Gospels where Peter gets things right. And he says, you are the Christ. And I think what Jesus is doing here, it's, it's sort of similar to uh, when my wife has a, a project that she wants me to do, some home improvement project that she knows I don't want to do. So she sort of slides up next to me and says, you know, do you love me? Right? Well, she knows the answer, right? Like, she's not confused. She's not curious. She's not uncertain. She knows that I'm never going to say, no, I don't love you, right? Like, what she's doing is she wants me to verbalize what's true because what's true is the basis for what she is going to ask me to do, right? When she says, I want you to build flower boxes for the windows on the garage, or when I want you to, you know, muck out the the rabbit poop, which I hate doing, right? Like, she's asking me, do you love me? Because it's not my desire to muck out the rabbit poop that's going to motivate me to do that. It's my love for her that's going to motivate me to do that. Jesus wants his disciples to have in their minds and on their tongue what is true, that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is uh, the one whom God has sent to fulfill all of God's promises to his people for thousands of years, because that's the basis on which what he is going to tell them and what he is going to ask them uh, is going to, to motivate them to accept it and to join him on that journey. So we see Jesus asking his disciples, and and Peter gives this answer. And if we've been paying attention, as we know, Peter frequently gets things wrong. And yet, uh, this is is one of the few cases where Peter gets things right. But we we might be, you know, if we're reading this gospel, we might be confused. You know, like we sort of know Peter's got a bad track record. So, you know, Peter says, you are the Christ. And we might be thinking, okay, is that true? Should I be believing that? Um, And just sort of... As a side note, Christ there is the Greek word for Messiah. Um, so, so Peter is saying, you are the Messiah. You are the one whom God promised to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, whom God promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses and to David and, and to all of the others, all the, all the prophets um, who prophesied of him. You are the one who is coming to fulfill our hopes and expectations, that, that God has sent you to work uh, to accomplish the redemption of God's people. And so we're asking ourselves, okay, is, is, this is what Peter is saying. Is this correct? And this is so important. This is so essential. This is so true that in the, in the passage that we read at the end, verses 28 and 36, right, we have a sort of different scene. It's eight days later, but Luke wants us to read these two passages together. You can see that by verse 28, right? Luke writes, and now about eight days after these sayings, right? Luke is, is tying these two passages together um, and, and wants us to sort of read them together to understand what's going on. And in this passage, this transfiguration on the mount, what Peter has declared, what Peter has has said, that Jesus is the Christ, is so important that God himself validates it by tearing open heaven and calling down and saying, this is 
my son, my chosen one. Right, so who is Jesus? Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's chosen one. He is the one whom God has appointed to accomplish his purposes. And so if we want to be on God's side, if we want to be involved in the work that God is doing in the world, if we want to be a recipient of the work that God is doing in the world, we have to align ourselves with Jesus. Right? We follow Jesus because he is the one uh, who God has appointed, whom God has sent, in order to fulfill all of his promises. As we've been going through Luke, one of the things I've, I've said is that Luke and Acts together, um, sort of a summary of, of the message of Luke and Acts together is that in and through Jesus, God has acted to fulfill his promises to his people to free them from the guilt of their sin and to empower them to live transformed lives in a growing community of believers that worship Jesus, love each other, and take care of the poor, the widowed, the orphan, the sick, and the foreigner in their midst. Right, And that's what we see in this passage, that, that this passage shows us Jesus is the one whom God has sent, and it's in and through Jesus that all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled. And if we want to be a part of what God is doing, if we want to be a recipient of what God is doing, we need to align ourselves with Jesus. And that truth is what gives the disciples confidence even in the midst of a very confusing situation in which Jesus tells them he's going to suffer and die. And of course, we we know that the disciples didn't fully understand that. In fact, they never fully understood or believed that until after it had happened. Jesus over the course of the next uh, period of his ministry, tells them again and again and again, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. And they didn't get it because it was such a difficult, hard thing uh, for them to believe and understand and accept um, until he actually died and rose again. Um, and, And what we see here is that Jesus, not only is he telling his disciples that, uh, that they need to follow him uh, because he is the Messiah. But he also shows them what it looks like to follow him. Right? So the second point is that we follow Jesus by denying ourselves daily. Right? What Jesus is asking his disciples is a very hard thing. In fact, what Jesus is asking not just his disciples, but us, is a very hard thing. Notice in verse 23, it says, And he said to all, which is important. That little word there, I think, is a signal. Previously, Jesus had, had just been talking to his disciples. But here, verse 23, we're told, and he said to all, if anyone. Right? So what, what Jesus is about to explain in verses 23 and following applies to everyone. It applies to disciples. It applies to you, me, your, your friends, your relatives, your coworkers, your neighbors. It applies to everyone. And what Jesus says is, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is a hard, costly thing because Jesus has already told us where he is going. And he is going to the cross. He is going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And he's saying, if you want to have any part of who I am and what I'm doing in the world, you need to follow me. And that's where I'm headed. And you need to be headed there as well. 
And Jesus gives us three different pictures of what it looks like to take up our cross. And each one of these different pictures is preceded by the word for. So notice in verse 24, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. Right? In other words, what it looks like to follow Jesus means it, it means being willing to give up our lives. Right? That's what he's talking about there. And then continue on, verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? There he's talking about material possessions, right? comfort and security. And then finally, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. Right There he's talking about our social relationships, our social status, our, our desire to be, uh, to be in community, to be well thought of, to have friends, uh, and people who care for us, right? He's saying you need to be willing to give up your life. You need to be willing to give up your possessions, your comfort, your happiness. You need to be willing to give up your, your relationships in order to follow me. And part of what's going on there, right, is that Jesus is showing us that his death is the way by which he saves the world, right? Jesus is saying, follow me, Follow the pattern that I have established. And the pattern is suffering and death, right? That is the way in which Jesus uh, redeems the world. And we cannot participate in Jesus' work in any other way than the way he did it. We cannot participate in Jesus' work in any other way than the pattern that he gives us, right? Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem. He didn't suffer. He didn't die on the cross because he couldn't think of a better way of doing things, right? Jesus went to the cross because it was the only way of doing things, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, Lord, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. But there was no other way. The way in which our forgiveness and salvation was to be accomplished, the way in which God would deliver his people was through Jesus' death and resurrection. That is the pattern. That is the, the, the path that Jesus is calling us to follow him on. And any time we hold something back from Jesus, any time we, we refuse to deny ourselves, any time we do not take up our cross, what we are saying is that we think there are other ways. We think there are better ways to accomplish the work of God in the world than the way that Jesus did it, right? When we refuse to deny ourselves, when we refuse to take up our cross and follow Jesus, what we are saying is there's a better way, there's a different way, there's a way that Jesus didn't know or didn't think about, right? But that's simply not the case, right? If you want to be a part of the work of God in the world, you need to take up your cross and follow him. And of course, taking up our cross is a symbol of death, right? That's, that's what uh, the disciples would have understood. To take up the, the cross in that context literally meant you were a convicted criminal, you would be given a cross, you would carry that cross to the place of execution, and then you would be crucified on that cross until death, right? That, and that is essentially what happened to Jesus uh, a mere uh, months after he, he gave these words, right? So to take up our cross means to die. And yet... I don't think, what Jesus is saying here, I don't think he's saying that you need to literally die for his sake. 
it's possible that there are some of you here in this room who are going to be called by God into dangerous, difficult places that are ultimately going to require your life. That It is possible. I, I can't claim to know the future uh, or what God has in store for each and every one of you. Um, but that may be true for some of you. But it's probably not true for most of you, right? And I think when we see this, we can actually avoid the force of what Jesus is doing in one of two ways. Either saying, well, um, you know, the, uh, the, there's, there's no context, there's no way for me to die, uh, and so I'm not even going to try, right? You know, that, that, that just sort of doesn't apply to me in any sense, and so I'm not, I, I don't even need to, to worry about it. Or by saying, well, what this means is that I need to be willing to die if someone were to sort of come to me and threaten me with death if I deny Jesus. And so I'm going to be willing to die in that scenario. But let's be honest, that scenario probably is never going to happen to most of us, right? And so again, it's sort of a way of, of not really dealing with the, the comprehensive demand that Jesus is making in this passage. Notice what Jesus says. He says, take up your cross daily, right? Taking up your cross meant being executed, you only get to be executed once, right? Jesus knew that. You only get to die once. And yet he says, take up your cross daily, right? What he means here is that the, what he's calling us to is not a literal death, although as I indicated, I do think for some people that is what Jesus is calling them to. But rather, what he's saying is what this looks like, what it looks like to follow me is to wake up every single morning and ask, What do I need to give up? What sin am I holding on to? What is keeping me from serving God in my life, in my relationships today? And to do that every single day. To ask yourself, what does faithfulness to Jesus look today? What does it look like in an hour, in in two hours, in five hours? What does it look like tomorrow? And to go through that process every single day of asking Jesus, asking God, show me in my life, where I need to give something up, where I am holding on to something, whether it's my money or my comfort or my security or, or my identity or my friendships or my social relations or my, or my sexuality or my whatever it is that faithfulness to God requires us to sacrifice and give up, that is what Jesus is saying. Right? There are situations in which sometimes faithfulness to Jesus costs us our, our lives. And we, we all know those stories. Um, there's a story about a, a young man named John Chua. Maybe you all heard of him. A number of years ago, he went to the tribe of, of the North Sentinelese people in Southeast Asia, and it ultimately cost him his life. There are countless stories in church history of, of, of missionaries who have given their lives for Jesus. But for most of us, for most of us, right, if we, if we apply the passage exclusively in that way, it actually sort of gets us off the hook, right? What we really need to do is think about how does this passage apply to me tomorrow morning when I wake up? How does it apply to me on Tuesday morning and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and so on? And, and this is difficult, right? Jesus is not asking an easy thing, right? Taking up a cross is a difficult Difficult thing, and Jesus knew that. But following Jesus is made easier by knowing that Jesus himself has already done it, right? That's, that's the whole point of follow, right? Follow me. I've done it. 
I have walked this path. He is not asking us of anything that he himself was not willing to do and did not do. And I'm, I'm reminded of the Christmas carol, uh, Good King Wenceslas. How, how many of you all are familiar with that carol? All right, okay, good, a handful. I asked that, I preached this sermon in RUF a few years ago, and none of them knew. Um, so I'm glad to see a couple, couple people are familiar with it. I really love it. It's very, it's an upbeat tune. It's a, it's a really fun, uh, Christmas carol. But it's about good King Wenceslas, who is a, a king in Bohemia about 900 AD. And the, um, the, the carol is, is a call and response between good King Wenceslas and his servant. And the setting of the, of the carol is that they're, uh, good King Wenceslas is feasting, uh, in his palace or, or whatever it is. It's this feast of St. Stephen. There's crackling fire, good food, fine wine. And out of the window, uh, good King Wenceslaus sees this peasant on this cold winter's night, uh, this old man who's gathering sticks for the fire. And, he, and, and the king says to his, his page, he says, come with me. We're going to go. We're going to take wood and food to that peasant. And so they sort of pr- proceed on. And, uh, and the king and the page are taking this food to, to the peasant. And, and this is what the, the page says. He says, Sire, the night is darker now, and the wind blows stronger. Fails my heart, I know not how, I can go no longer. And then good king Wenceslas responds, Mark my footsteps, good my page, tread thou in them boldly. Thou shalt find the winter's rage, freeze thy blood less coldly. In his master's steps he trod, where the snow lay dinted, heat was in the very sod which the saint had printed. Right, in other words, good King Wenceslas is saying to his page, he's saying, follow me, right? Step where, I, literally, step in the steps that I've stepped, right? He's, he's cleared the way, he's cleared the deep snow. If you've ever tried to walk through deep snow, you know how difficult that is. And good, good King Wenceslas is saying, step where I have stepped, step where I have cleared the way, uh, and what the page finds is that, you know, the, there's sort of heat and, and energy even in the, in the very footsteps. Um, and, and that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, follow me. Don't, he, he's not asking us to, to set off on our own into a land or territory that he doesn't know and, and isn't sure that we can handle. All he's saying is, follow me. I have done it. I have cleared the way. Uh, simply follow me. And that takes us to the third point, which is that we follow Jesus because of the hope of glory. Right? Following Jesus means following him to the cross. Right? But it doesn't end there. The path that Jesus trod didn't end at the cross. Right? The path that Jesus trod continued on to the resurrection and the ascension and the, and, and the coming back in glory. You see that. You see that referenced in, uh, in verse 26, uh, where he talks about the Son of Man uh, when he comes in his glory. And then again, uh, in the transfiguration, we see Jesus in glory. Right? The, the path of Jesus does not end with the cross. And if we follow Jesus, we follow him not just to the cross, but through the cross into the resurrection. Right? It's, sort of like, uh, it's sort of like getting on a roller coaster um, you know, if, if you've been on a roller coaster, you sit down and the, you know, the attendants come and they, they pull the bar down with this ominous, like, clang. Um, and if you have a fear of heights like I do, you know, like, when you hear that sound, you start to second-guess your whole life. 
And you're like, why did I do this? Right? And then you, you proceed out and you, you come on that first incline. And um, the, the roller coaster that I used to go, go on as a kid was a wooden roller coaster. It was, I think, the tallest wooden roller coaster in the country at the time. And, it, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd get on the chain and go, you know, all the way to the top. And at that point, like, you don't get to say, stop, raise the bar, let me out, I don't want this anymore, right? You are on that roller coaster until the end, for better or for worse, right? Like, that's it. You're on it. And that's true for us. If we follow Jesus to the cross, right, we are on that roller coaster until the end. And it ends with the resurrection from the dead, where we see Jesus in glory and where we also are raised in glory as well. And so Jesus knows that he is asking his disciples a difficult thing. And he's telling them that the basis on which he's asking them is the fact that he is God's Messiah, God's chosen one. And he explains to them what it's going to cost them because he doesn't want them to to enter into that life without knowing the full impact of what it's going to cost them. But then he tells them, he shows them what's in store for them if they follow him. Right? He gives them a picture. Notice in verse 27, he says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And then eight days later, uh, as I indicated, Luke wants us to read these two passages together. He takes Peter, James, and John up, up onto the mountain and he gives them a picture of what's in store. He shows them, you're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to see me on the cross. You're going to go and find your own cross and follow it. But at the, end of that, at the end of that journey, this is what's in store for you. The hope of glory. And Jesus says, uh, Jesus says in Matthew, 28, or Matthew 18, verse 29, he says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And notice in our passage in in verse 24, he says, whoever uh, would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. One of my seminary professors one of his favorite sayings was, God is no one's debtor. Nothing that you give up for God, for Jesus, nothing that you sacrifice in service of Jesus will not be paid back to you with interest in full in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns in glory and raises us in glory. Let me close in prayer. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks for your word, and we pray that you would... Uh, you would motivate us to follow you, to take up our cross daily. Pray that the knowledge that you are uh, the one that God has appointed and sent to accomplish uh, his will in the world uh, would motivate us. The knowledge um, that, uh, that we can hope in the resurrection and in the coming glory uh, would motivate us when, when the way is hard and the, and the cross is heavy. Uh, we pray that you would give us the strength uh, and the confidence to press on and, uh, and give us joy in, in the hope that we have uh, in you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.